for scripture reading for today. It's going to be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, verse 1 to 5. And then we're going to go to chapter 17 and jump to Matthew, chapter 4. So that's Exodus, chapter 16, verse 1 to 5. Then go to chapter 17 and we'll jump to Matthew 4. Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. We'll jump to Matthew 4, chapter 4, uh, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Father, we come <clears throat> before you to sit at your feet, and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would feed us, Lord, your word this morning, that we might know you, we might worship you, we might glorify in your presence as you fill us with your understanding of your word, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. The last time that we uh, visited Exodus, we were standing on the seashore, and we were watching the Israelites singing and celebrating. It was a party. They'd been delivered miraculously from the power of Egypt. With their mouths open with astonishment, they watched God's power as he separated the sea, as they moved through only to watch behind them the seas close and bring judgment upon the power of Egypt. If you can recall, Pharaoh had held the people of Israel with closed fists. With each plague, ten plagues, each finger of Pharaoh's hand had to let go until the Passover and his hands were opened and Israel could leave. Pharaoh was compelled 
to let people's, people of Israel go. It wasn't his choice. God made it for him. This event was so momentous, so amazing, that it echoed throughout the nations. The people that the Israelites were going to go towards, they knew the story, and they feared God, the God of the Hebrews, because they heard what he had done. But now on the seashore, the celebrations and the relief, they're over. People were now free, delivered from slavery, but now a new question arose. Now what? What do we do now? We've traveled for a month across the desert. Now what happens to us? The euphoria of rescue is fading away with the new reality dawning. What are we going to do? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Moses, what's the plan? What are we going to do? And as the story unfolds in Exodus 16 and 17, I want us to take note of a few introductory matters that will help us to walk through the passage. And the first one is, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? The Exodus people did not have our knowledge of God as a father. They did not have our knowledge of Jesus as a savior, or the Holy Spirit with his power. This was unknown to them. It was incomprehensible if you tried to explain it to them. If we had been there on the seashore with the Israelites, we would have seen God as both powerful and terrifying. In Exodus 14.31, as they watched the events unfolding of Pharaoh's army coming to get them, and when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared God and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You know, you would have seen God as a pillar of cloud by day, as a pillar of light and fire by night. That's God. There's a great gulf between God and his people. It would have been obvious. And Moses was the only one through whom God the Lord would speak to his people. So naturally, as a congregation of people, you would have gone to Moses and you would have asked questions. Moses, what are we supposed to do? And so they came and they said, what's the plan, Moses? And the plan had been given a long time before. God had said to the people, I've come down to rescue you from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring you, all of you, up to a land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the plan. I'm going to bring you and plant you and make you my people. However, if you start to, to walk through this passage, we're going to see that God has something greater than just land or rescue. He has a greater purpose. Something that was for them and for you sitting here. And that comes for a final introductory item. I want you to notice in this passage, as we go along, different themes that emerge. You probably heard it when Alice read the scripture this morning. Grumbling and quarreling. It appears frequently in Exodus 16 and in 17. And it also appears later when we finish today's message somewhere else, which we'll get to. And it's also the response of God with his provision. You see this, the provision that he offers. He offers provision on two levels. The obvious level of your need. We need some food, Lord. 
That's our need. God says, I'll give you food. But I'm going to give you something else, something more important than food. And we'll look at that in a minute. So this is a pattern we're going to watch for. Grumbling, quarreling, and God's provision and different levels of his provision. So the party's over. And at Exodus 15, 22 to 26, it begins a series of four stories, four provision stories, three of which are about rebellion and one of which is about protection, victory in battle. So the first story is after the party is over and they're heading out into the desert. Moses leads them out at the end of, of chapter 15 in Exodus. And you have your Bibles. Please open your Bibles because I can't put every text on the slides. It's too much. It says in verse 32, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert. They went into the desert. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink it's water because it was bitter. And that is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? The idea of grumbling, we're familiar with that. It's to, to murmur, to complain, to express resentment, dissatisfaction, anger. It's complaint, as Walter Kaiser says, in half-muted tones of hostile opposition. You hear it every day. There's people complaining today about what happened last night with the Canadians. There's grumbling and complaining. Why didn't this happen? Why did that happen? It's a gift we all share. Grumbling comes easy to us. But when they come to this place and there is water, they can't drink it because it's bitter. And the idea here is the people saying to Moses, we're not going to drink that. That is not drinkable water. So what are we going to drink? We have livestock. We have children. We have no water. What are we going to drink? So what does Moses do? He does what every one of us should do when we have a need. He goes and cries to the Lord. And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. First of the provision. I'm giving you provision of water to drink. But God does something else here. There's a second provision that they didn't ask for. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. God instructs and tests his people. God says, if, if you listen carefully to the voice of your Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, and keep all his decrees, then I will bring on you, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that are brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. There's the deeper provision that they weren't looking for. They weren't asking for that. They were asking for water. And God says, yeah, 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 I know you need water. What you really need, though, is to listen to me. What you really need is to pay attention to what I'm saying. What you really need is to follow my law that I'm going to give you. As Israel was going along, they were marching towards and getting ready to receive God's law, which we will discuss in a few weeks. Pastor Brent, I'm sure, will talk about that in full detail. But this story forms the first provision story, 
grumbling, and provision. It seems really simple. Often God's word on one level is for us to understand. So as we walk through this passage of 16 and 17, we're asking, how does God provide for his people? And to make it even crystal clearer, there's a need, there's grumbling, then there's provision. It's a pattern that we all go through every day. Every time we face a situation, we face a need. We have to turn to God for provision. But sometimes we don't do that. We first grumble about the situation. In the second story, in Exodus 16, which was read for us, the first few verses, it says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled again, this time against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, oh, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. You know, back in Egypt, it's been a month. All our provisions have worn out. We have no food left. Back in Egypt, a month ago, we had pots of meat. We had all we could eat, all the bread we wanted. But you brought us out here in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What an accusation to make. If only we had died. It reminds you of Exodus 14:12. Just a month before, they were saying the same thing. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And then God rescued them to the Red Sea. And so here, a short while later after watching all that God had done, they're complaining about the lack of meat and bread. Remembering a past that didn't exist. What's not mentioned is the slavery, the misery, the bondage, the suffering, the injustice, the death. They were freed from that, but they didn't remember that. They remembered food and drink. And you brought us here to starve us to death. And so, the Lord was listening. He was listening to the grumbling. And so he proactively, Moses doesn't need to cry to the Lord. At least we have no record of it. God just steps in when he hears this grumbling. And he says to Moses, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I will make provision for the people. Bread and meat. In fact, the bread will last 40 years as I give it every day until you enter the land of Canaan. And in this passage, the first 12 verses... Grumbling occurs eight times. And as we go through this, Moses points out, your grumbling is against Aaron and I. Your grumbling is against the Lord. In fact, in verse 9, then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israeli community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. There he is. And the Lord in verse 11 says to Moses and to verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. This is the same word that Moses brought to the Egyptians. When I bring my people out of Egypt, you will know the Lord. 
He's treating the Israelites as if they're unbelievers. Now, we can look at this and we can kind of say, well, that's kind of, you know, kind of harsh. What you do not see in these passages is you don't see what you'd expect God to get angry. Hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. I have just redeemed you people. Ten plagues, splitting the Red Sea, making water sweet at Marah, and now you're still complaining? God doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do it? I was thinking about this. God, why? My natural reaction would be to say, you ungrateful people. I mean, what more do you want? But I thought, hmm, what if we look at the nation of Israel as a baby? They were just learning about the Lord. They knew him as, a, as the God of their ancestors. They'd spent centuries in Egypt. And now they were learning about the Lord. If you have a newborn baby and your baby cries because he or she is hungry, what do you do? You feed the baby. You don't say, you want to eat again? You're crying again? No, it's, it's a baby. The nation of Israel was a baby. And God was gently instructing and teaching, providing for the physical needs, but also providing for the deeper needs that they didn't even know they needed. A baby doesn't know what they need. They just react to the physical hunger or the physical thirst or other things that they go through. And so Yahweh instructs. He teaches his people. He says the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. I'm going to provide only what you need for the day. It's often the way with God. He doesn't give us the whole plan. He doesn't tell us heaven tomorrow. He says, look, today has enough challenges. I'm going to take care of today. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Remember back at the waters of Marah, waters of bitterness, what did he say? I will give my instructions and I will see if you will follow them. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in and that is to be twice as much as they gather in other days. And so God is teaching and giving the first occurrence of Sabbath. God himself takes a Sabbath rest after creation. His people must be like him. You must also take a rest. So I will provide twice as much you need on the day before the Sabbath. Because if, if you don't, then things will not work out. If you try and keep the manna, the bread from heaven that's on the ground, it'll go rotten. But for one day, when you collect twice as much, it will not. Another miraculous provision. Imagine getting up in the morning, every morning, and you look outside and there's breakfast. There's the day's sustenance. Every day you're reminded of God's presence. Even when he provides double and doesn't get bad overnight for the Sabbath. So you don't have to go and gather. You have time away from your work. So God's providing physical provisions for his people. He sweetens the water. He provides bread and meat from heaven. And his spiritual, his deeper provision for the people is listen to my voice in Exodus 15. Keep my Sabbath in Exodus 16. Because you must become my people. You're not quite there yet. I have chosen you, but the question is, have they chosen him? 
That's our question too as we go through this. Yeah, God is here. He's, but are you with him? Have you chosen to follow him and to be with him? As the people, as our people, don't seem to get it. Some gather and look on the Sabbath day for bread, of which there is none. And so they end up testing. I went too far. They end up testing the Lord. In fact, if you look at the rest of Exodus 16, where is it here? Moses becomes very angry with the people because they continue to search for bread on the Sabbath day. And so the Lord steps in in verse 28 and he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you, plural, refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why in the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. And finally, in verse 30, They've learned. So the people rested on the seventh day. They'd learned the Sabbath. It took a while, but they figured it out. We come to the third story of water. At the first story of water, there was water present, but they couldn't drink it. Here there is no water. The whole Israeli community set out from the desert of Sin traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. The Lord was telling him where to go. He knew what his plan was. They came and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so this time, they don't grumble. They quarrel. They fight with Moses. Give us water to drink. It's not a question anymore. What are we going to drink? It's a, it's a demand now. Give us water to drink. Walter Kaiser says in his commentary, what a gracious gift, what was the gracious gift of God through Moses is now demanded as a magical solution to their problem. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why are you fighting with me? Why do you test the Lord? Haven't you already seen his provision? Remember now, think of a child. Think of a small child. I'm demanding to be fed. It's not a question. I'm not asking to be fed, I'm demanding it. So they demand water. And it's a, fee, a real physical need. This is not just a, a wish. This is a need that they would have. And so God's people end up testing or tempting their Lord when they distrust his kindness and providential care for them. Then they grumble against him. The argument becomes so serious that the place is renamed Massa or testing. It's renamed Meribah, or quarreling. And so they quarreled against Moses. And does this sound familiar? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Three times they said that in Exodus 14, 15, 16. Why did you do this? As if they'd been done an injustice to bring them out of Egypt. And so the Moses cries to the Lord. And it's interesting what Moses has to say. When he says in verse 4 to God, he says, what am I supposed to do with these people, God? They're unruly, they're grumbling, they're quarreling. In fact, 
They almost are ready to stone me. They're going to throw rocks at me and kill me because I'm not giving them water. As if I, Moses, can give them water. Only you can do that, God. And so God steps in again to provide his provision. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. That's exactly where you want to be if somebody wants to stone you, isn't it? You know, you all want to throw rocks at me. Well, I'm just going to step back a bit. I'm not going to have God say, look, stand in front of the people. Okay. Okay, Lord, I'll stand in front of the people. And he says, go in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders this time now. Take some of the leaders with you. Take the staff in your hand, the very staff that I gave you and that you used to strike the waters of the Nile. And then go. And I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. So the people grumbled. Moses cried to the Lord. And God is providing now a physical need being provided. And this time it's in the sight of the elders. Now think of it. God says, I will stand before you by the rock. The pillar of cloud has moved to a rock. You're the elders and you're coming with Moses. Now Moses is a little more used to this than you are. And you're coming towards this awesome being who you don't know, really know, who just has done all these amazing things and has killed all these Egyptians. And you're standing there and Moses takes the staff that he used to poison the Nile as judgment of blood. The same staff is now being used to bring life-giving water. And you're a witness. You've seen this with your own eyes. God is starting to share the burden of what he has given Moses with the elders. And so the people have ended up in verse 7, testing. And at the end of all this, I love what Walter Kaiser says. He says, in less than six months, the people witnessed ten plagues. They'd seen the pillar of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of sweetened water, meat and bread from heaven, only to ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? That's the question. They're quarreling and grumbling. That's, just, that's always the same thing. Is God here or not? Is he going to help us or not? If he doesn't, well, it's better to die. This is an exaggeration. In verse 6, when God stood with the rock before Moses, he demonstrated again that he is among his people. But as I said a little earlier, are his people with the Lord? You know, there are times in our story, in our narrative, in our days, where we ask the same question. Lord, I know you're with us, but am I with you? I want you to do things in my life. I have needs, Lord, in my life. You know what they are. And I want those needs met. And God is giving a provision and he's saying, well, listen to my voice. Come to me. Trust me, depend on me. Because we have to learn to trust, and it's learn to trust God's compassion and kindness. The fourth story, the fourth story of provision in Exodus 17 is, oh, I went ahead of myself, is victory in battle. It's a provision of protection. This is a different story because we don't see any grumbling directly. It says the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. We know in Genesis that the Amalekites 
Well, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. So these are distant cousins, distant relatives. And they decide their response to the people is to attack them. And we know in Deuteronomy, it tells us, they didn't attack Israel. What they did was they attacked the stragglers, those who were too old to keep up with the main... And you're talking thousands of people stretched out as you march from place to place. And the ones at the very end are being killed by the Amalekites. And so Moses said to Joshua, we need to deal with this. I'm sure, even though it's not in the text, I'm sure people were upset. My, my grandfather just was killed on the way in to camp. Moses, what are we going to do about this? You have to do something about this. And so Moses called Joshua. Choose some of the men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow I will stand on the hill with the staff of God in my hands. We know when the Israelites left Egypt in Exodus 13:18, they left Egypt equipped for battle. It says they were equipped for battle, for war. And now that's being required. And so, as you know the story, as Moses stands up on the hilltop, he raises the staff, almost his intercessory to God. And as he does, the Israelites and the Joshua, they're winning the battle. But as his arms get tired and he falls, the Amalekites start to win. And so, Aaron and Hur come, and they help to keep his arms up until the victory is secured. Demonstrating that this is God doing it. God is answering the intercession and protecting his people. So the narrative shows that God was teaching Israel that the hand of Moses, with whom they were quarreling just a short while ago, was contributing more to their safety than their own hands. Now these needs we're talking about are physical, and yet God provides much more than their physical needs. And since God is among his people, they need to learn how to live with him, how to be his people. And these stories in Exodus are also recorded not just for the history of Israel. They're, they're here for, another, for an additional reason. They're here for us, to lead us to the final fulfillment of God's great provision. See, God intended a greater level of provision than these stories point to. Throughout Exodus, the people are called to seek him. So I want you to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 6. If you have your Bible open, turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, take them from the pew in front of you and turn to John 6. This is basically our long application. This is what Exodus is, is going, the direction. In fact, uh, there was a commentator, Beasley Murray, who said, this is the second Exodus. This is Exodus part two. And I'll just give you the stories. because I didn't bother putting the text on the slides. But you know the story. Jesus sees the people and he sees their need. And he feeds them. Feeding of the 5,000. He takes... He walks on water and goes to Capernaum. In Capernaum, he teaches about the manna from heaven and what it really means. And in this 
series of texts in John 6, we see the same pattern repeating also three times. Grumbling and provision. It's interesting that in verse 4 of chapter 16, it says the Jewish Passover feast was near. Interesting. The Passover just finished a month before. God is providing bread in the wilderness. And so Jesus sees the need. And he calls his disciples. And he says, hmm, where shall we buy bread for all these people? And in verse 6, he, he said, we know, he said in verse 6, he asked us only to test him, his disciple, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. He involved the disciples and he said, you guys supply, provide the solution to the people's need. They couldn't. All they had was a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And so Jesus, as we know in the story, had the people sit down. And in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather up the rest. And when they did that, when they went to the crowds and picked up the scraps of bread and fish that were not consumed, then the people realized this was a miracle. In verse 12, or verse 13, no, verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus said, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Who are they talking about? It's Moses. They're sitting on the hillside and they're saying, hey, wait a second. Deuteronomy says that God will raise up a prophet just like Moses. Is this the guy? Because he just fed us. Jesus is like Moses. And so Jesus begins to teach. He teaches in verses 25 to 40. And I won't labor this too long. It's just far too much that I've discovered that I cannot share in such a short time. But Jesus begins to talk about the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And the people hear this. And in verse 31, they say, Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And of course they say, give us that. We, we want that. That's the kind of bread we're talking about. Now we're getting there. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. There's the ultimate provision. He is the bread of life. Now it's interesting because the Jewish, some of the Jewish leaders spoke of the Torah, the law, as bread. It is like bread. So he has this discussion and in verse 41, look what happens. Grumbling. At this, at hearing about Jesus talking about he's the bread of life, come down from heaven, the Jews in verse 41 in John 6 begin to grumble because he said, because Jesus said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And the Jewish leaders amongst themselves say, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say these things? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And if you have your text open, what does Jesus say in verse 43? 
Stop grumbling among yourselves. You're just like your forefathers. You're grumbling. No one can come to me unless a father who has sent who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he says in verse 49, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give to the life of the world. This is the first time Jesus talks about eating. In the first provision of teaching, he's saying, this is the reality of the bread of heaven, that's me. And now, in this second teaching, he's saying, you must eat and partake of the bread. And the minute he says, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, what happens? Quarreling, grumbling. In verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is offensive. He's talking about cannibalism. This, this, this doesn't make any sense. How can he be talking like this? When Jesus uses the word flesh, he doesn't use the word body. He doesn't say, this is my body. This isn't about communion, eating his flesh. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, that's a pretty tough statement to make. He's talking about sacrifice. Remember, the Passover is coming up in this text. In a short while, Jesus will be on the cross, his flesh given, his blood given, to give new life. So his flesh given is not for, this, for, for paying for sin in this context. It is because it gives life. Yes, his death pays the penalty for our sin, but his flesh brings life. For he who eats of the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. I remember when I first read these verses, uh, it was confusing. What does he mean? His flesh and his blood. We have to eat his flesh and his blood. What, what does that mean? And I reacted in similar ways to his disciples. If you go to verse 60, another example of grumbling. Only this time is those who are following him. On hearing it, on hearing Jesus saying this about eating his flesh and blood, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It was a stumbling block. They didn't understand what he was talking about. How can he do this? And so aware, again, this is his provision of teaching, aware of their grumbling, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Does this bother you that I say you have to eat my flesh and blood to have eternal life? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, in the glory of heaven? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. That's his explanation. When I read those words when I was thinking about this a long time ago, it made sense now. 
eating and drinking the Son of Man is a vivid way of presenting the truth that in order to have eternal life, people must take Christ into their inner being. And it's not physical food. When we share and break the bread and cup, break the bread and have the cup next Sunday, that doesn't save us. That's a reminder of what he's already done in us. What he's talking about here, partaking of him, of hearing his word, of believing, of accepting, of pouring yourself out before him that he might fill you. Because it doesn't make sense on a literal level. But think about it. People say, oh, he devours books. You can swallow a story. You can eat your own words if you've said something stupid and somebody says, ah, you're going to eat your own words by saying that. Or the one I like, which I hear people say and never understand, a grandmother will hold a child in her arms and go, I can eat you up. You're so beautiful, I can eat you up. It always sounded kind of weird, but you understand the sentiment behind it. If you didn't understand English and you're thinking, whoa, she's going to get that child away from her. She's going to eat that baby. What country have I come to? This is crazy. That's the literal plane. If you understand the context and what's being meant, it makes sense. It's not offensive. And so Jesus is teaching them about what it means to follow him. And he doesn't make it easy. He knows exactly what he's saying. He doesn't make this easy to believe. He's saying, this is going to cost you. It's going to cost me my life on the cross. And it's going to cost you everything to follow me. And so you come because you need to come to me. In Jeremiah 15, 16, the prophet Jeremiah said, When your words, God, came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And we learn in verse 65, just before we come to our last portion, that Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. In In a very interesting way, if you understand what I'm talking about this morning, if you're looking at this and going, flesh and blood, okay, I, I see it's, it's partaking of Christ in a spiritual way. God the Father has enabled you to understand that. Tomorrow morning when you go to work, read this to some of your colleagues and say, this is what I believe. That you're supposed to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus. What are they going to say to you? Oh, tough weekend. It's not going to make any sense to them. Because understanding comes from God who enables us to understand what his word means. Now, the result of this, in verse 66, from this time, many of Christ's disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They said, this this is enough. We like his moral teachings. We like his, his miraculous signs. But these words, we don't understand and we can't follow it anymore. They turned away. And so, we come to the final provision the eternal provision. Jesus turns to, his tw- to the twelve and he says to them, do you want to leave too? Do you? Do you want to leave? And on behalf of the twelve, Simon Peter makes this, this confession. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You're the end of our search. Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You have come, we've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Not just the Messiah. You're the Holy One of God. Only God is holy. No one else is holy. Only He is. And Peter's confessing, hey, we now know that you're the Holy One of God. And we've heard the same conversation going on about the flesh and the blood, and we understand. 
a little bit. We're following. We're committed to you. We're going to follow you. So let's put this together this morning as we finish off. Talking about bread and water and food can be difficult just before noon on a Sunday morning. So how does God provide for his people? Well, we know that it's not by bread alone. It's not by water alone. It's not by protection alone. He does provide these things. But his ultimate provision is not these things, these material things. His ultimate provision is by giving Jesus Christ, who is the bread from heaven. The manna in the desert was given by him. It is through Jesus Christ that we live eternally as we abide in him. We live in him. We remain in him and he in us. That's partaking. It's a spiritually understood and lived out activity. And it's through faith and trust and obedience as we walk with him. You see, God knows your physical needs. He knows what you need. And he provides for those needs in his time. And he decides what you need. I have a lot of wants. I have a whole list of wants. A very tiny list of needs. And God says, we're going to take care of these. These over here, we'll we'll look at. But they're wants. Don't confuse the two. And the kicker is, we cannot provide for ourselves. The Israelites could not provide bread and water for themselves in the desert or protection. God had to do it. The disciples couldn't feed the 5,000. Jesus had to do it. God had to do it. We cannot provide salvation for ourselves. God has to do this. The work of God, Jesus said, is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone, everyone, not just Jews, but everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So, today, is God drawing you to him? Is God opening your eyes to say, wow, this, this is true. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the provision that God has made so that I might live my life with him forever. If this is something that is just dawned on you and God is opening your eyes to see it, then today, let, let today be the day that you bow before God and surrender up all you are to him because he wants everything. The problem with the gospel is that not that it's, it's, it's true, it's that it's too expensive. Many people just won't pay the price. I love that message. It's a great philosophy, but you want everything from me. You want my life. Everything must belong to you. Hmm. That's where a lot of people get stuck until we see our need and we realize that he's the only one who can provide for our needs and he is worth it. God's love for us is worth everything we can give to him. And as you pour your life into him and abide in his word and live in him, he redeems us and frees us just as he did with the people of Israel. Because God knows exactly who you are and what you need. This morning his hand is open. But you have to put your hand in his. God put man on the desert and he said, you've got to pick it up. I'm not going to hand feed you. There's water from the rock. You go collect the water from the rock. I provided. Jesus is here and he's saying, but you've got to step to me. You have to come to me. I'm waiting for you. This is our true and real need. Everything else is just temporary. We're all going to die. That's just the reality of life. 
but God provides an eternity of life with him. If you're already walking with our Savior, then he's asking you today to do something too. He's calling you to immerse yourself in him and in his word. Because Jesus had said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you know Jesus, if you're walking with him, it means you have to read his word. You have to immerse yourself, abide in that word. It has to fill you. Because the word is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the bread from heaven. You are the bread of life. You are the provision that has been set forth before the foundation of creation itself. That you would be our ultimate provision for life. That you would call us to be your people. That you would provide the way that we could know you by sacrificing your flesh and spilling your blood that we might not have to do that ourselves. And your perfect flesh and your perfect blood has redeemed us and we give you thanks and praise to that, Lord. Without you, there is nothing. We worship you and thank you, Lord, for your words and we pray that you would fill us with the joy of knowing you, the joy of reading your word and meeting you every day. In this we pray, Jesus. Amen. Our benediction comes from the end of Psalm 33. We will wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May our unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Be blessed this week. Amen.